You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games on behalf of gamers worldwide. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. The Broken Meeple, Episode 17, The Best of 2013. Welcome to The Broken Meeple. On today's show, first impressions will be given of Clash of Cultures and Tesuro. The discussion topic for today is based on local game stores and what we should do to save them if we should at all. And a top 10 list this week is the big one. The top 10 of 2013 as requested by you, the community. I am your host Luke Hector and you can find me on the Freedom 5 superhero team from Sentinels of the Multiverse. Hello and welcome to episode 17. It is now the 3rd of May 2014. It's a bank holiday weekend and, well, I've got nothing better to do but record a podcast. Ha! No, don't worry. I'm glad to be recording this. I've got some spare time today, so I thought I'd basically get everything sorted out in my life, from games to blogs to eBay to tidying up the flat, pretty much all sorts. And, of course, that includes recording the next podcast. Now... In terms of what's happening later in this month, I'm going to be attending the UK Games Expo. We are less than four weeks away from that now, and I cannot wait to sink my teeth into that. It's going to be my first convention I've been to regarding board games. And, well, I'm going for the whole three days. I will be staying in the Hilton Hotel itself. You know, I'm doing it properly, no expense spared. And I'm going to be taking some games with me. I look forward to playing some new games. But most of all, just to get into the atmosphere of a board game convention, one that I've never done before. And I also hope to meet a lot of the personalities that I've gotten to know on Facebook and Twitter who do their own board gaming podcasts or just board gamers in general out to promote the hobby. There's a lot of faces that I've yet to meet and I look forward to doing that soon. But enough of that, let's get on with the first impressions. First up, we have a civilization game by Z-Man Games called Clash of Cultures. This has been on my try list for a long time because I do like a good civilization game when it gets going. Now, I've watched a few reviews of Clash of Cultures and the general response seemed to be quite mixed. There were some good positive notes about the game, particularly its tech tree system and the fact that it had a very interesting and very innovative map system. But there were also some criticisms about it, about the quality of the plastics involved and the fact that it just seemed a little bit too combat heavy. So I figured it was about time I got down and saw for myself what it was all about. Now in Clash of Cultures, it differs slightly from other civilization games in that you don't have a race with a particular special power or anything. You all start off as the same. You are all the same nation, same ability, same everything really. You are placed on a... A struggle to say hexagon, you're you're placed on a modular map that you have to go out and explore. You start off with one town settlement effectively and a couple of settlers and you go out exploring the map whilst building settlements elsewhere, a bit like if you're a bit like Sid Meier Civilization style really or Age of Empires I suppose, like computer game versions and you level up technologies from irrigation all the way up to 
modes of government and taxation and currency, that kind of thing. And all the while, you have to complete objectives that appear throughout the game. You also have to manage your resources to make sure that your villagers don't starve or remain unhappy. And also, you need to boast up your defenses because other players may want to come around and squander, squander? might want to come around and conquer your various villages. And not only them, but various barbarians might appear on the map as well to ruin your day. Now, essentially, the game plays out as an action system where you have many options to do each turn, but you only have three actions a turn to do them with. Now, I, it, it's good because it doesn't mean that you've got to be efficient with the game, but three actions for me is not enough. Three actions are really limiting. You want to do so much with your civilization and you just can't because free actions really doesn't give you a lot to do. Now, we played the short game, and this, I suppose if you played the long game, you'd have longer to get your sort of your preferred strategy up and running. But if we played the long game, we would have been there the whole night. The short game with three of us still took in the region of probably about two and a half hours or so. So it's not a short game by any means. And if we were to play the long game, we'd be there even longer. If there were four of us, we'd be there even longer. So this is not a short game by any means. Now, I have to admit, the technology tree in it is pretty cool. You've got, I believe, 12 different trees that you can go down, and you have to purchase the first tech in each tree before you can get any others. But then after that, the world is your oyster in that tree. There's only four things in each tree, but it still gives you quite a good amount of flexibility, and there's a wide variation of technologies. So this is one of the game's major plus points. The resource management and collection is handled pretty well as well, and the map looks very gorgeous when it gets going. The plastics, I don't mind. They're not great. They are a little bit flimsy, and you do have to put up with some flash issues on the plastic itself. However, when they're on the board and you're basically just placing them on the board, you don't really notice, and it's a relatively minor issue. So I wouldn't be put off the game for that reason. The only thing I seem to find, though, is that the game almost dictates what strategy you should go for, because depending on what the map layout is will dictate what you should really do. You don't really get necessarily a choice of, I want to do this particular strategy, other than the fact that you want to do it for fun. For example, I wanted a load of religious fanatics on a navy fleet. Well, the problem with that was, is that the religious people are very good at doing what's called cultural influence, which is where you turn an enemy's village into your own, sort of slowly but surely. The problem is, they have to have a... Uh, a particular size village in order for you to do that and if they don't the ability becomes worthless on top of that if you want to do anything with fishing and navy you need some water on the map and the water on the map is completely random as to where it is and whether it gets you anywhere so suddenly you know you might have wanted to do that for enjoyment's sake but if the game doesn't let you do it then you're not really going to get very far the other thing I found was that combat seemed to be a major necessity in this game. The overall winner of the game was the one who went most combat heavy because he was able to steamroll through our lesser defended villages and effectively get what he wanted out of the game at the very end. So it's I suppose we could have had some more defenses up ourselves, but it still just seemed that if you were to go and focus on combat, you probably wouldn't have too much of a problem. And okay, people can say, well, boost up your defenses more, but you still only get three actions a turn. If you've got to spend most of your game just getting up basic defenses, then you haven't really got many actions left to do what you really want to do, and that's 
you know, build the units you want, get the technologies you want, and so forth. It's a relatively minor issue, though, that I've got with the game, because all in all, I found it quite fun. Uh, the issues with the sort of combat heaviness of it, the fact that events that are a bit random, and the fact that, you know, the you can't really pick the strategy you want to play, you kind of have to pick the strategy that's most optimal given the map layout, that it puts me off wanting to buy it. But it's a game I would probably happily play again, and it's a civilization game that I certainly suggest you check out and make your own opinion on. So for starters, that's The Clash of Cultures. Next we come to a relatively old game, well, an old game from my perspective anyway, this dates back to 2004. Published by Cosmos and Wizkid Games, this is Tesuro, spelled T-S-U-R-O. This is an abstract strategy game that can play up to 8 players, and I like abstract strategy games. I'm not the biggest fan of them, you know, I would rather have a game with theme and such and such, but... Occasionally, you are going to want to just test your brains out on something that's fairly simple, but, you know, quite challenging and almost a bit like a puzzle. Now, what Tesuro is, is a very simple game. Each of you takes a dragon counter. Um, it's this cool little, almost, I don't know what it's necessarily made out of. It almost feels like a cross between plastic and rubber. But it's these re really cool Asian theme that goes with it. So you've got a board with a big dragon over it and a grid system. You've got these little dragon tiles that you have, and you've got all these other tiles which basically represent lots of little wiggly wiggly paths that go across the board and connect up to every other tile that you place down. What the object of the game is, is you play a tile and you move your dragon tile across, uh, I suppose dragon tile, dragon piece, uh, so dragon piece would be a better name for it. You move your piece along one of the paths until it gets as far as it can go, providing it doesn't fly off the board. Because if you fly off the board, then you lose. The next player does the same thing, and play continues round as each player plays down the tile and moves their dragon piece across a particular path. When tiles connect up to those other tiles, you follow the same path that you're on, you can't deviate, and you effectively keep zigzagging around the board until either you fall off the edge or you collide into another dragon piece, in which case you lose and are eliminated. The object of the game is to be the last dragon standing. Now this is a very simple game. It's not the smallest game in the world though. You do have a fairly largest board because it has to accommodate eight players. But, and even though the tiles are basically just a load of wiggly lines over them, it's a, quite an entertaining abstract game to be honest. Because you've got to think about where your path's going to go. You've got to think about where the other players are on the board so that you don't lead up to them eventually. And it is actually quite hard to be the last one standing because a lot of the time everybody will die or at least the last two players will die at the same time, meaning that it ends up in the draw. But it's just really quick, really easy, but it just gets a good laugh. You have to, it, it's, well... Yeah, it gets you thinking, it gets you laughing with the others as you're zigzagging around the place trying to dodge each other. It looks good. Um, I suppose £20, £22 that this game costs is a little bit much for it. Maybe I would have preferred it if it was in the sort of 14 to 15 area. It, but the theme of the game looks really nice. You've got cool little dragon piece tiles. You've got the dragon board itself, which is very good. The components are pretty good quality for what you get. 
and it's just a simple game, but it can take up to eight players, and it finishes really quick. One game can take five minutes, if that. It's really quick. I mean, no, no game should ever take longer than 15 minutes, and that's including rules explanations. It's just really quick, really simple, and there's not much else I can say about it. If somebody you know has Tesuro, I suggest you ask them to bring it in on a games club night and just try it out. It's effectively a filler game. Won't take you long to try it, but I reckon you'll like it as much as I did. It may be a future purchase point just to fit in the role of an abstract filler. Who knows? Still thinking on it. That's Tesuro. discussion topic for today is about local game stores. Now there is a general consensus that this isn't just secluded to local game stores, it's just stores in general, that because of the wealth of online opportunities that we have now in order to purchase games, that local game stores are on the high street selling things at recommended retail price are effectively going out of business as a result. Now, this isn't necessarily the case with all of them. A lot of them stay in business mostly because of Magic the Gathering, which is a collectible card game that is just taking the world by storm. And the amount of money that they make from those with anybody from kids to adults tends to keep them in business. A lot of people will suggest that maybe more should be done to help out these local game stores. Now, I do like the fact that there are local game stores and it is nice to be able to walk into a store and check out all these really nice looking games but if you want to be realistic when you walk into a local game store and you see a game you might like how many of you out there don't suddenly think now that's a cool game wonder how much amazon has it for or better still i wonder how much like a, a typical retailer of games online like uh let's give a few examples games quest games law board game city uh, monkeys with fire um Try to think of others, don't want to leave them out. I've said Games Law and Games Quest, haven't I? Uh, Infinity Games UK, that kind of thing. You know, There's a lot of really good online retailers of games, and their prices are just better. You know, They vary between all the sites. I don't shop at a particular site. I shop at several sites. I find the best deal, and I go for it. But it's just there's not much incentive for me to go into a local game store and pay what could be £10, £15 more then you can get online. Much as I respect a local game store for being around, you just realistically in a day and age where we're struggling for money most of the time, you're not really going to go out of your way to support them. Now, one thing that I have seen a lot of recently, particularly in the US, but Oxford has a place like this, and there's even a, a uh, an acquaintance who has come to one of our Southampton groups who's thinking of starting up his own in Southampton. It's this sort of board game cafe type layout where you can go there, pay a cover charge. You can play board games from either your own or a library that they have in their collection. And of course, whilst being a cafe, it means you can sit down, have a cup of tea, buy some food and just generally enjoy playing some games. Now, this I do like and this is the thing I would support because one of our clubs plays in a pub. The other club, Portsmouth, one plays in sort of a pub. It's more like a British Legion. It's a slash, public house slash function room. You know, it's a bit of both, but it doesn't feel like a pub. So that's quite a nice venue. And the third 
club that I've now started checking out, the Chichester Board Game Club, is based basically on sort of basic tables in a I don't know what to call it really. It's just a building that you can rent out with basic food, um, basic drink facilities. And I like the sound of a board game cafe, and I would happily go to one if one was in Portsmouth. In Southampton, probably not. It's a bit of a way to drive. But if loads of people I know are going to go there, then I wouldn't say no, and I would probably visit it. But I like the idea of that. Being able to go to a location that is devoted to playing games, so you're not distracted by other people. You've got a huge library of games that you could demo out, you could try out. If there was one in particular you weren't sure of whether you wanted to buy or you're thinking of it as a present, you could go to the cafe, pay the charge, and try the game out. A staff member could even help you play it, if they're particularly friendly or knowledgeable about the game. But then whilst there, you of course have tea and coffee facilities, which let's face it, we all need tea and coffee to stay alive these days at this rate. And obviously good food, you know, no one mind a slice of apple pie or a jacket potato with chili or something like that. You know, even even a scone or a slice of cake if I was feeling indulgent. Although that doesn't tend to happen very often. I'm much of a health freak. But I like the idea of that. Oxford has one called, I think it's called Thirsty Meeples. I've not been there myself, but if I visited Oxford, I'm sure I would check the place out. But, you know, we need more of these around. Granted, you're only really going to get much, you know, it depends on the city, really. London... Yeah, London could do this easily. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if London has a few of them already. Oxford is a pretty large city, and it's got a good gaming community, so it's not surprising that there's one there. But you're going to have to choose your cities wisely in order to know that the board game cafe will make enough business so that it can afford to run. Now, with other local game stores that I know of, there are some that diversify into other things, such as models, miniature gaming... Uh, old models, you know, like those Airfix things, and of course Magic the Gathering and collectible card games, which tends to bring in the business. Some people think that the Magic the Gathering lark has dominated local game stores to a negative effect. I don't see that as a problem, really. If it keeps them in business, then fine. Granted, my days of Magic the Gathering are over. It's already drained enough of my funds in my university time, and I've met my fair share of fun people and slightly deranged people who have played Magic, and it was an enjoyable phase. But obviously I wouldn't be playing it again now. But I respect it for being a very influential and a very popular game. So I can't really knock a local game store for capitalising on this fact. It's just good business sense. It's not really something that you should be faulting or deciding, nah, you can't do that, that's not on, you know, you should be just selling board games. Well, the problem is board games is not a prosperous industry now you know online retailers can make a fair bit of money from board games but not lots we're not talking hundreds of thousands of pounds of profit or anything like that board game retailers have a tough time especially with the amount of competition and other small time retailers that keep popping up all over the place trying to get in on the market it's just not popular enough to warrant you know too many local game stores around so you have to take the rough of the smooth and just accept that the online presence is there and it's going to dominate. I think the Board Game Cafe, though, is a fantastic business model and I would urge more and more people to try it out. But in terms of just local retail of games, it's just not going to work. It's No business is really going to survive just purely on board games. The board game stores that I have seen around the UK that literally just do board games and that don't tend to be around for very long or forced to sell their products at 
RRP, which means most people aren't going to buy them unless they know the person or really want them around. It's just not enough to keep them going. So, with local game stores, I respect you for being around, but I have to just be blunt and say that the online presence is there and it's going to dominate. But board game cafes and other similar establishments, good on you. Give it a try and I hope that maybe one day we'll get one in Portsmouth. I'll settle for one in Southampton. It's close enough. Chichester would be a good alternative option, but it would be so good if we could get one in Portsmouth. And no, I'm not going to try and run one myself. I simply do not have the time. I am an accountant. I have other things to do as well with my time. So no, I won't be starting my own board game cafe. But that's my general opinion on the subject. What do you think about local game stores? Do you like them being around? Do you shop in them often? Do you believe that they should be there rather than the online retailers we have now? Send me your tweets, send me your comments. I'll be interested to know more. So that's enough for now. It's finally time. It's the top 10 of 2013. Now, Listeners to the podcast will remember that I already did a top game of 2013, and I based this on many different factors, not all of which I base my opinions of games on when I think, are these my favorites? Now, that may they may run into the, uh, each other, they may be the same priorities now and again, but it does not necessarily mean that my top game of 2013 in December is the same as it is now. It may be, it may not. You'll just have to listen and find out. But these are the games I have played during 2013 that I have most enjoyed and most respect for what they are. Now granted, I have not played every game of 2013, but then again, neither have you. So you can't have a go at me for that. I've probably played more than some of you, but then some of you have probably played a lot more than I have. So it's just one of those things that you're going to have to tolerate. I've played as many games of 2013 as I can, and throughout this year, if I get to play any more, I might revisit this list at some point in the future. Naturally, the list will go up on BoardGameGeek, so if I do have to update the list, I will do so via BoardGameGeek. I'm not going to record an entire podcast just to change one or two items. So without further ado, let's get in with the top 10 of 2013. In terms of the year as a whole, now bear in mind, my I've enjoyed board games all my life, but the real hobby for me didn't really kickstart until early 2013. So most of pretty much what I've played to date has been a sort of 2013 and earlier era. But I would say as a whole, looking at the games on my shelf now, I don't think 2013 was a fantastic year for me. Granted, there are some good games out there for 2013. But when I look on my shelf, I see a lot of them from the millennium onwards. And, you know, I see Sentinels of the Multiverse. I believe that was a couple of years ago. Chaos in the Old World, I've just recently purchased. That was only a recent game. Uh, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, uh, uh, Seasons, uh, Arkham Horror, the original Arkham Horror. Android Netrunner was 2012, technically not 2013. And that's one of my favorite games to date at the moment. So I think... My more favorite games in my collection mostly relate to earlier years. So 2013 was, I would say, is not going to be up there in my top, you know, let's say top years of gaming. But there were still some classics this year. So it's a good one to talk about. And I know that 
people on Board Game Geek have voted this one highly as a list for me to get on with. So, yep, I'm babbling now. Let's get on with it. 2013 Top 10. Number 10. First up at number 10, this is a relatively new purchase for me, and it has grown in popularity. However, it's not had, well, it's not necessarily had enough plays. It's more that you have to really play this with the right group because it can wind a lot of people up. Because in this game, no deal is binding. No action or promise has to be taken up in the future. Somebody could ask you for some money in return for something else and just straight up lie to you there on the spot and say, nope, I'm not going to do it. And the best you can say against that is that it's nothing personal. Yeah, this is the game in, designed by Tom Vassell and Steve Avery, and it's a hit and miss with a lot of people. Personally, I quite like the game, but even I have to admit, it can really frustrate you when people just don't go with the deals you have. You cannot play this game with a light heart. And I like to think I have a light heart. Okay, some people are probably going to say otherwise, but it depends if they play games with me or not. But in this game, yeah, I found myself being on the receiving end of a lot of broken deals, and it can rag you. But the right group will make this game a blast. It can be a lot of hilarious fun as people just hold grudges for the whole game and even beyond. You know, we're talking Twilight Imperium 3 level grudges, and the game is not that long. You can get this game done in a couple of hours relatively easily without the maximum number of players. And the artwork is really cool looking. It's great to have the sort of parodies of people like the Dice Tower Network team and everything. It's, it's, and obviously there are more expansions coming out that are going to have even more uh, people like that. I, I think there's already one out called the Young Turks, which has things like game designer faces on it. So it really does look cool. But it's it may go up in the ratings over time, but for now, it just pips in at number 10, knocking out my number 11 spot. I'm not going to say what it is, you'll just get it on the honourable mentions later. So number 10, nothing personal. Number 9. Number 9 is a sequel game, a cooperative game as well. Packaged in a tin, and it has also taken the world by storm, because its predecessor also took the world by storm, and this one seems more of a gamer version of that one. I'm talking, of course, about Forbidden Desert. Forbidden Island was an original game by GameRight that was very simplistic. It was almost like you could get the family and kids into a cooperative game, where you were on a sinking island, and you had to move your pieces around a load of very nice artwork tiles, and complete your objective. I don't know the exact objective, I've not fully played the game myself. Forbidden Desert, however, is kind of like the upgrade to it. You're stranded in the middle of a desert and you have to search for pieces of your broken ship, your airship effectively, so that you can, it's almost like steampunk in that regard. You have to find the pieces for your ship and get out. Problem is, you've got a sandstorm that's trying to bury you under a layer of sand, you've got the heat which is dehydrating you so you have to keep alive with water, and just generally you've got the problem that you've got to go and locate these pieces because eventually the storm will get up to such a high rate that you just won't survive. I have yet to beat this game. I am not kidding. I don't know what it is with this game. This game I find harder to beat than ghost stories and people who know ghost stories know that's a hard game. I don't know what I'm doing wrong in Forbidden Desert. Maybe I'm playing with too many players. Perhaps it's easier with only two players say because I tend to play this with a full count of five but Boy, is it not an easy game, but it's a very simple one. 
and very entertaining and very easy to set up, play, teach, and just generally do multiple games of. And every time I play it, if we lose, then somebody will usually put his hand up and say, can we play it again and try and beat it? It gets a lot of repeat plays. I wish it wasn't in a tin. I really do hate tins as storage boxes. They are a pain. They get battered. They are impossible to stack. Even though they may look very nice and pretty and shiny, come on, just use a basic box, people. We're not asking for much here. But it's a really cool little game. It's, it can get a little repetitive at times, hence it's not as high up on the charts as I would like it. But every now and again, particularly if I'm teaching new people how to play a game, I will bring this one up and we will like it. In fact, I'm giving myself ideas for tonight, actually. I'm going to visit two friends of mine who I've just recently taught some very basic games to. I was going to take Ticket to Ride, and I still intend to. But maybe Forbidden Desert would be a nice one to take, because they enjoyed Hanabi, and that was a simple co-op game. Hmm. Oh well, we'll see. That's number nine, Forbidden Desert. Number eight. For number eight, we have a Euro game, and a Stefan Feld one at that. And I bet a lot of you weren't expecting that. Now, this game has been quite good for me as I've been playing it. Um, I got first shown it by a friend, Gareth Thomas, who showed me a two-player version of this game. And effectively, you are exploring islands, settling down, trying to gather sort of trade goods that are on the island. But it's effectively like an area control game where you're trying to, t to not conquer, but to occupy as much land as possible. What makes this really cool, though, is that you have a cube tower that designate your actions. If you haven't guessed it by now, this is Amerigo. Now, the cube tower has different color cubes that represent the different actions you take. In order, you will go through each of these actions, and they they can be uh, plotting land, you know, getting the designs. They can be actually building the settlements that you're going to do. It can be sailing your ship around the islands, which is on a cool little modular map. It can be to purchase cannons to fend off pirates. It can be to get uh, trade goods to get points. And there's various other little tracks for economy and teching up, that kind of thing, that you can get points on as well. It's typical Steffenfell point salad, really. Now, the thing I love about this game is that cube tower. The cube tower is so much fun because what happens is you take up all the cubes of that particular color and you drop them in. Now what happens is that it's set up in such a way that some cubes will fall all the way through and come out the bottom, but some will get stuck, and it may dislodge other color cubes. Your actions are limited to how many cubes come out as well as the color that it is. You might need to sail your ship a certain number of spaces, but if not enough blue cubes are available, you can't. So you have to constantly adapt in a tactical way to what comes out of that tower. And it's not just luck of the draw, your opponent has to do this as well. There's an element of luck, but not a great deal. And it's really cool that you might have a turn where you think, right, this is where I'm going to need to worry about cannons. I don't desperately need cannons, but let's drop them in and see what happens. You dislodge two green cubes. You are able to suddenly take some construction actions and you think, ooh, that's handy actually. I need to do that. Let's use those instead. And play continues in this way until, you guessed it, whoever hits the most points wins. It is quite a cool game. I mean, the theme is not too strong, but then that's not exactly surprising when you're talking about a Stefan Feld game. But in the way the mechanics work in that cube tower, it looks very colourful and gorgeous. There's a lot of pieces. 
It's done by Queen Games, which I know, shocker, something by Queen Games that I like, considering the whole Kingdom Builder fiasco. And it's a huge box with a very good insert. You know, you can store this game easily in the box. You just might have more, tr more trouble storing the actual box because it is a big one. But it looks great on the table, and I've just been having quite a blast with it. You know, I quite like Stefan Feld games sometimes. They do have some really cool games. Oh, well, that's enough about Amerigo. That's my number eight. Number seven. Number seven is probably the biggest money sink on this list. And when I say money sink, I mean a money sink. Not only do you have to buy a relatively expensive base set game, but then you have to buy adventure packs on a almost monthly basis. You then have to also buy character add-on packs if you want more of those. There's going to be a second base set coming later this year, which will have its own adventure packs. It's quite a money sink, and we're talking maybe not in the regions of things like LCGs, but it's close enough, and that is Pathfinder the Adventure Card Game. Now, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game is based on the D&D Pathfinder universe, where you have a deck that is constructed either from a set selection in the book, or you can pre-design pre it yourself. You have a character, like a druid, a mage, rogue, that kind of thing. And the idea is, is that you are doing missions that are part of long campaigns, and you have location decks where you cycle through the location deck, and you account to obstacles or monsters to kill, and it's almost like a sort of semi-deck building game. Now, with this, I don't like to play it as a solo scenario type thing. It doesn't work as well as that, and if it was just that, I would probably not have this anywhere near a top 20. What is really cool about this game, though, is that if you're willing to put up with the money sink, the character progression in this is good fun. You become very attached to the character, and you enjoy the fact that you're adding new items to your deck, getting new abilities, uh, wizards and clerics, you know, they have spell cards that they can cast, and there's quite a good amount of tactics to this game. And, okay, the artwork is not stellar, but it's not bad, and there's a lot of customization, particularly when you add on those extra adventure packs as time goes on. It's, again, a money sink. But it is good fun, and I do suggest people check it out and see what they think. Maybe I recommend playing a mate's copy, though, and seeing how it goes. But if you play it as a campaign, which you almost certainly should, or at bare minimum, you should do it as a kind of like mini campaign, so maybe like three missions into one, it's a good laugh. How long it will last, I don't know. With the second base set coming out, it's rumored that you can't convert your characters from one to the other. Not sure how true that is, but we'll have to see how things go from there. So that's Pathfinder, the adventure card game at number seven. Number six. Number six is a train game. My God, a train game on my top ten list? Am I crazy? Well, train game is a bit of a weird description to give it, really, because it doesn't feel like traditional train games. It's another point salad game. It's done by Z-Man, and it has been quite popular with people that I've seen it played with. Technically, you're not connecting up trains. You are building train tracks, and the tracks themselves aren't really your typical tracks. It's very much more a mechanics game rather than a theme game, to be perfectly honest. But the mechanics work well. The worker placement aspect on this is spot on. There's enough contention, but not too tight to put people off. And you get points for just about everything in this game. Build a track, get points. Build some industry, get points. 
uh, go second or third, get points. You know, you get points for everything. It almost, I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something in the rulebook that said the person at halfway mark with brown hair gets 10 points. It really is the biggest salad mix I've ever seen for points. The game itself, Russian Railroads. It's, I played it and I just got hooked on how the mechanics work so smoothly. You can play this relatively quickly, but there's many different paths to victory. And it's got the cool sort of system where generally it only costs you one worker to place out in order to get an action. Now, if someone takes that space, yes, you can't take it from them. But there's usually an alternative space that does almost the same thing, if not the same thing. But it takes more workers to use. So you don't always feel that you've been squandered out of the ability you need. You just need to allow for more workers. So you have to think about how far can you push your luck as to whether you leave a space for so that someone might nick or do you go for it early and get it before no one else does. So there's a lot of decision making in this game and I was pleasantly surprised that anything related to trains I would actually enjoy. Although I would probably give some kudos to Snowdonia which is sort of a train game that I did quite enjoy as well. But this one, I must admit, I will probably add to the collection at some point, but it went out of stock by the time I could. So, oh well, at least I know plenty of people who own it already. That's Russian Railroads at number six. Number five. Number five is a horror game, specifically Eldritch Horror. Yes, I enjoy Arkham Horror, but obviously Arkham Horror wasn't done in 2013, but I own Eldritch Horror and I enjoy that as well. It plays very much like Arkham Horror, except it's done on a worldwide scale rather than just in the city. The gist of the game is the same. You have an ancient one that you must stop from arriving. You go to various locations and have encounters, pick up items, use your skills, that kind of thing. And just like Arkham Horror, it's incredibly immersive and really good fun. My only downside with this, and that's why it doesn't go up higher on the chart, is that there isn't enough variation in the game for it to last currently. But this is Fantasy Flight. You know what they're going to do. They're going to release expansion after expansion after expansion and coat this game with a huge layer of cards. We've already got Forsaken Lore coming out in the middle of May here in the UK, which of course I'll be getting, but I just wonder whether it will add enough variety or not. We'll have to see, but... As long as you don't play this game too often, I mean, don't like play it every day because you will just see the same cards come up over and over again at this point. But every now and again to whip it out and have, say, four or five players having fun with this game, it's just really immersive. You get into the game. The artwork is fantastic. The theme is fantastic. It's just highly enjoyable. And it's just, I mean, if you like Arkham Horror, you will like Eldritch Horror. If you don't like Arkham Horror, you might still like Eldritch Horror because it is simpler and easier to get to the table and play. I wouldn't say it was still a short game though, it's still a longish game, especially when you shove in all the players and take it from me, do not play this game with more than six players. I mean, I'm not even sure if I would play it with six players anymore, but certainly do not play it with seven or eight. You are just asking for trouble and boredom, you know, because it will just take far too long for what the game is. But play it with five or less players and you will have a blast. It's immersive, it's good fun, it's Eldritch Horror by number five. Number four. Number four is a filler game. Yes, there is no reason why a filler game should not make a top ten list. Filler games are just as good as big heavy games if they do their job right. And a filler game should be quick, easy, look good, 
lots of fun, one that will get repeated plays, easy to teach, easy to learn, you know, all those boxes that they have to tick on the checklist. For me, though, the card game version that came out before, I have tried and I found it far too long. It gets convoluted and too lengthy and sort of never ending when there's too many players. And for an elimination game to be knocked out of the game when the game's going to take forever, it's a pain when you're at a local games club. This, however, is Bang, the dice game version. And the dice game is nice and quick. You can have a game done in 15 minutes without any trouble. It's stupidly easy to teach. If you have played King of Tokyo, you know how to play half of this game already. If you have played Shadowhunters, you know how to play the other half. It's just a nice, simple, quick game of shooting other players, secret loyalties, you know, trying to bluff who you are, whether you're an outlaw or a deputy, and the sheriff's trying to think, who's on my side and who isn't? Who do I kill? The outlaws are trying to pass them off in shadows. The renegade is trying to pass everyone off against each other so that he's the last man standing. It's great fun. Great components. The card stock is good. The box is good. The insert is functional. And the dice are gorgeous and chunky. It's a pleasure to roll those on my felt table. It really is. So Bang the Dice Game gets my number four. It's been getting lots of repeated plays. I'm loving it. It's one of my best filler games I've got. Number four. Number three. Number three. We're going on to heavy long games now. We are on civilization games again and no this is not clash of cultures it was the wrong year and from my first impressions it's not one that would go on my top 10 top 10 civilization games yes but then i haven't played 10 different civilization games there aren't that many around at least not many well heard of ones this one though is a sequel to fruity ages now fruity ages was a very complex game where you were pushing cubes around and you had to go through several ages of prosperity drawing cards from a long track which gave you advisors, gave you new technologies, gave you different buildings and, and stuff like that. And it took ages, but it was really complex. And it's still quite a cool game. I've only play tested it. I haven't played it fully, but it's, you know, quite a nice game. But it's just too long and too complex to get to the table. Enter Nations. Nations is done by a relatively new designer and relatively new publisher on top of that. But it's very similar to Fruity Ages. You've got cards that you draw for buildings, advisors, and upgrades, that kind of thing. But you've also got to think about things like your military strength. Because if someone else has more military than you, they can start a war. And wars can have a negative effect on your city. Now granted, Fruity Ages had that as well. But it was very punishing if you're on the receiving end. You can get around the war rules in this by getting the war early, which means that when you buy the card, the strength of the war is very low. But then you've also got stability, which is another track to keep um, a mental note of, which is how stable your civilization is in the event of a war. So you may have not enough strength to fend off the war, but if your city is very stable, then it's not going to get affected by the negatives, apart from just losing the victory point. Nations, though, gets you making a lot of decisions. I mean, when you look at all the cards you've got and how your civilization is built up, saying, oh, you know, do I go for putting a worker here? Do I work the farm? Do I get some more military? Do I just buy a card? Do I get some resources? Do I pass? There are so many decisions you make in this game. And yes, it can make itself a bit AP prone, but because you are in through the ages, you have to take your whole turn before the next person does. And that with AP players is a pain. 
With this, you take your t actions one by one and you take it in turns for the actions. So you never have too much downtime until you get like the chronic AP people playing this game. But it's still a long game, particularly if you play all four ages, but the card variety is extreme. You will barely get through half of a deck for each age, even in a four-player game. It's just, there's a lot of variety. Different cards will come out at different times, and you've got to think, oh, do I buy it now? Do I wait? I've only got this turn to buy it. Oh, God, someone nicked it. You know, there's so many choices to make in this game, and as well as playing a nation with a specific power, China, Persia, Greece, that kind of thing, when push comes to shove, your nation is completely different from everyone else's, and it just feels like your baby, something you created, and this is something that I really like in games, and something you're going to find as a theme with my number two. But for now, number three is Nations, a great civilization game. Number two. Okay, we're getting to the top two. Now, number two is a sequel to a very popular UA Rosenberg game from, uh, I forget what year it was, but, you know, it basically took the world by storm when it came out among Eurogamers. It was probably still in the top ten now. It's been, like, number two at times. It's been number three most of the time. It is very popular. Now, the old game was called Agricola. This new one is called Caverna, the Cave Farmers. And this is, well, if you thought Agricola had a lot of parts, Caverna is ridiculous. It's like twice the size box-wise. It has a ton of tiles, a ton of wooden components. It looks gorgeous, and is definitely worth that price tag in components alone. But, woo, it's a big box, and you've got to have some good system for storing it, because even I struggle to get everything in that box now when I've already bagged it up and put things in little tubblewares, that kind of thing. Really, if you've got a decent system for how to store your Caverna and set it up quick, seriously, give me a bell, tweet me, email me. I want to know, because I would like to find a more efficient idea than the one I've got. But, that aside, Caverna is fantastic. It's... A heavy price tag, yes, but in this game you are still creating a farm as before, but you also have your cave where you can furnish it with rooms that give you special abilities or give you extra victory points at the game, and depending on what you do with the rest of your, effectively, your home and your farm. But with Agricola, it was very tight play. If someone knocked you out of a particular space, it could really damage you. You also had the problem that feeding your people was such a focus point in the game, it kind of detracted away from the fact that you were supposed to be running a farm. Caverna solves those issues. Feeding your people is still required, but it is no longer the be-all or end-all of the game. You also don't have your points capped at various levels, because in Agricola, you could only get so many points for something, and you had so many ways of getting negative points that you were forced to do a balanced farm, so you didn't really feel like you were very different from other players. Yes, you had the occupation cards and the improvement cards, but that was it. And to draft those that started the game, it usually added another 20 minutes to the game. So it was good, and I still have a Grickler sitting on the shelf. I haven't played it in a long time, mainly because of Caverna, but I still enjoy it. Caverna, though, is easier and more streamlined. It gets to the table a lot quicker. It's still a very involving game, but you can do what you like in this game. If you want to have a farm devoted entirely to sheep, go for it. If you want to ignore farming and just build up a really lavish cave, then go for it. If you want to go adventuring lots, go for it. If you want to have every animal on the planet, go for it. You know, you can do whatever you like in this game, and it's still very balanced. We get a lot... I don't think I've had a game where someone's been a runaway victor. 
they've always been close games. So it's, you know, really good fun. It misses the top spot mainly because it is a price tag that is big. You know, we're talking 60 plus pounds for this game. It is not cheap. And there is a lot of setup involved and a bit of fiddliness with the tokens. So it does fall off the top spot for that reason. But it's still fantastic. I love it. And if it gets put down as an option, it's going to take a lot to convince me that I don't want to play it. It's This is Agricola 2.0. It is Agricola fixed. It is fantastic. I love it. Corona the Cave Farmer is my number two. And finally, number one. And we're on to number one. Well, I bet you've guessed it by now because you knew this was going to make the top 10 list. You know what I said in December. Nothing's changed. Things have come close. Caverna came close. Nations is very good. And I couldn't put Bang the Dice Game as number one, but it was still worthy of a top five place. But my number one is still Spirium. Spirium is just something that ticks all the boxes. Granted, you could do a lot more with Caverna. But with Spirium, it is cheap to buy. It is easy to play. It is easy to teach and learn. It has good artwork. It has a fairly strong theme if you look into it. People sort of give this game a bit of stick for not having a lot of theme. But think about it. You've got the nine-card market there with all the people and buildings. As meeples surround each card, then there is demand for that item or building or advisor. Therefore, it's going to get more expensive. You might have a worker there that works that bit of the market and gains you lots of money. But then as each meeple comes off, it devalues and so supply exceeds demand. It does work. And obviously you've got your buildings themselves. You know, the mines produce the spirium ore. Your factories use workers and the spiriums to produce victory points, well, goods effectively. Your universities and labs just require manpower, so you use meeples for that. And it's... It just really works well. The nine-card market system is really cool. It, I, wouldn't, I can't say innovative because one game did do it before, but this one does it better. It's got a lot of tactical decision-making to make. You can have a strategy, but you've got to think on the fly, depending on how the market goes each game. You've got lots of different paths to victory. It's just, oh, like I say, cheap to buy, easy to teach, lots of depth, tactical depth, strategic depth. Uh, good artwork, good components. It's just a great game, and I do enjoy playing this one a lot. It's also balanced. It's also very good with all card, sorry, card player numbers. Granted, yes, a five-player game is going to take you a while, which is a little pull-off, but a five-player game is still just as enjoyable as a two-player game. You know, it doesn't matter how many players you've got, this game still works. So, I mean, listen to my other podcast if you want to hear me talk about it more. But this is a game I really like. It's certainly a game that would feature in my top 20 of all time. No problem. Granted, there are other games that I probably enjoy more from earlier years. But for 2013, Spirium was an unexpected surprise. I didn't think I would enjoy the game this much when I heard about it. But it just clicked. And it deserves my number one spot, Spirium. And there we have it, the top 10 of 2013, and that wraps up episode 17. I'll be back soon with episode 18 with a new top 10 list, 
more first impressions and a new discussion topic. I hope that the audio on this podcast has been better than before. I am kind of experimenting at the moment because my Blue Yeti microphone is doing my head in with the fact that it picks up every sound from across the country. And also, as meant, that has meant I've had to have the volume down a lot, which people have complained about. I have now managed to jury-wig away to use my Stereo Rode Microphone Pro from my camcorder connected up to my laptop with Audacity, and I'm hoping that by having it close to me and using its audio, which is a much better cardioid audio, I can't even say that, but cardioid audio, (laughs) try saying that fast when you're drunk, um, system, will hopefully mean that my voice sounds louder in this podcast and hopefully still retains clarity. I would still like your opinions on whether the sound has improved or gone down since trying the switching microphones, but if I get a positive response to this, I will carry on using this microphone setup. So for now, I'm going to get on with cooking some chili because I'm due at my friend's house very soon later, and I need to also make sure I've got the games for them to play. Teaching new gamers how to play games. I do enjoy doing it. Maybe one day I'll look forward to uh, meeting the one and teaching her how to play board games as well. Although in my ideal world, my other half would already like board games. But obviously you can only, (laughs) you have to accept that not everybody is a gamer these days, don't you? So, and other than that, can't think of much else. UK Games Expo in four weeks. I'm looking forward to that. I'm in three board game clubs now, Southampton, Portsmouth, and Chichester. So if you want to check out any of those board game clubs and meet me face-to-face, then just pop along. I'm sure you will find me there. Failing that, you can find me online at the usual social media sources. Oh, yeah, one thing I will mention actually very quickly with the blog. Now, the blog is going to continue as it is. I'm still doing YouTube videos. That's fine. The regularity of each will depend on my time, and I'll try to sort of do maybe one video and one review every week, like without fail, something like that. Maybe more videos if I'm doing little things like unboxings. Uh, They don't take as long to edit and record, but how to plays and reviews do take a while. Written reviews, there will always be at least one each week. That should be no problem to maintain. But the session reports are going to undergo a bit of a change. Now, session reports I have done for Portsmouth and Chichester, I'm sorry, Portsmouth and Southampton, I won't do them for Chichester because that's just too much. However, doing those session reports, usually when there's like one a week or sometimes even two a week, it's just taking up too much time. I need some free time. I need some me time. You know, I've got gym, I've got friends, I've got games to play even. I can't keep doing the session reports. I'm not going to quit them entirely though. What I'm going to do is change the format. Now, they will still be based on the Portsmouth and Southampton clubs, but instead of reporting on what happened at the club as a whole, I'm just going to report on memorable games only. Now, this means that I won't always have a session report every week. It depends on what I've played. But you will notice the recent one I posted up of of a Southampton on board session focused entirely on a very memorable and very entertaining seven-player game of Battlestar Galactica. And I enjoyed writing about that more than I do writing, and on the other table next to me, they were playing Carcassonne. On on that table, they were playing Discworld. Looks good. Meh. You know, and on that table, they broke out some fillers. You know, writing that stuff is not entertaining, and I don't think it's that good to read. It also makes it a bit of a pain to post online on BoardGameGeek, because if you're talking about many games, where do you post it? Which forum? Which game? You know, what's the highlight? So I am basically going to write a session report every time I play it, a game that I find particularly memorable. 
doesn't have to be one that takes the whole session. It could just be a 90-minute, two-hour game. It could be a filler. But it's going to be a game that I will focus on entirely and give my thoughts, almost like a first impression session report. But it won't necessarily always be a game that I've not played before. It will be games I've played before. So I wouldn't be surprised if a Sentinels of the Multiverse uh, session report comes up in the near future because those games are very memorable. But that's just a heads up. So sorry if you liked the fact that I was talking about the whole club as a whole. But I'm hoping that this new way of doing it will A, give me some more time so I can regain some sanity before Cthulhu gets hold of me. And B, just generally be more entertaining to read. So anyway, I'm blabbering on. We're getting close to the hour mark. So I'm going to leave you there. Take care. Enjoy playing games. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And I'll see you on episode 18. You've been listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games on behalf of you, the gamers that play them. You can find the Broken Meeple on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. My Twitter feed is at the Broken Meeple. Facebook, just search for the Broken Meeple. Same goes for Google+. You can also find me on Board Game Geek under the pseudonym of Farmer Giles. If you wish to meet me face to face, you can find me at several board gaming clubs in the local region. The Titanic Pub hosts the Southampton on Board Gaming Club on Monday evenings at 7 o'clock. The Portsmouth on Board meets up fortnightly at the British Legion in Portsmouth. Search for us on meetup.com for more information. And Chichester Board Game Club can be found on Facebook. Just search for TCGS or search for the Chichester Board Gaming Society. I'm Luke Hector, signing off now. Take care, enjoy playing games, and I'll see you soon.